Chapter Three of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Three, The Passing of an Illusion. El Mahdi wanted to run, and I let him go. The swing of the horse and the rush of fresh, cool air was good. Nothing in all the world could have helped me so well. The tears were mastered but I had a sense of tremendous loss. I had jousted with the first windmill, riding up out of youth's golden country, and I had lost one of the splendid illusions of that enchanted land. I was cruelly hurt. How cruelly, any man will know when he recalls his first jamming against the granite doorpost of the world. Of love and all its mysterious business, I knew nothing. But of good faith and fair dealing I had a child's conception, the terrible justice of which is but dimly understood. The new point of view was ugly and painful. From the time when I toddled about in little dresses and Ward carried me on his shoulder in among the cattle or hoisted me up on the broad horn of his saddle, I had looked upon him as a big, considerate providence. I did not understand how there could be anything that he could not do, nor anything in the world worth having at all that he could not get, if he tried. So when he told me of Cynthia, I considered that she belonged to us, and passed on to the next matter claiming my youthful attention. It never occurred to me that Cynthia could be other than happy to pass under the suzerainty of my big brother. True, I never thought very much about it, since it was so plainly a glorious privilege. Still, why had she made her promise, if she could not keep her shoulder to it like a man? We did not like it when Ward told us. We did not think much of women, Ump and Judd and I, except old Liza, who was another of those splendid providences. Now it was clear that we were right. It all went swimmingly when Ward was by, but no sooner was he stretched out with a dislocated shoulder from that mysterious blunder of the black abbot than here was Cynthia trailing over the country with hawk roof. I stopped at the old alestock mill, where Ben's run goes trickling into the stone coal, climbed down from El Mahdi and washed my face in the water, and then passed the rein under my arm and sat down in the road to await the arrival of my companions. The echo of the horse's feet was already coming, carried downward across the pasture-land, and soon the head of the cardinal arose above the little hill behind me, and then the bay eagle, and in a moment more Ump and Judd were sitting with me in the road. We usually dismounted and sat on the earth when we had grave matters to consider. It was an unconscious custom like that which takes the wise men into the mountains and the lover under the moon. I think the Arab sheik long and long ago learned this custom as we had learned it, perhaps from a dim conception of some aid to be had from the great earth when one's heart is very deeply troubled. I knew well enough that my companions had not passed Woodford without running the gauntlet of some interrogation, and I waited to hear what they had to say. I think it was Judd who spoke first, and his face was full of shadows. "'I would never believed it of Miss Cynthia,' he began. "'I would never have believed it.' "'Don't talk about her,' I broke in angrily. "'What did Hawk Roof say?' Judd studied for a moment, as though he were slowly arranging the proper sequence of some distant memory. Then he went on, he wanted to know where I got that big red horse, and if Mr. Ward's men ever walked any. Any, 
The man's open mouth closed on the broken sentence, and Ump answered for him, sitting under the bay eagle with his arm around her slim front leg. And he wanted to know what we did with little Quiller when he cried. I thought I should die of the intolerable shame. I had cried, blubbered away as though I were a red-cheeked little girl in a clean calico petticoat. After the dead line which Ump had crossed for him with the brutal frankness that went along with his dwarfed body, Judd continued with his report. He asked me where we were going, and I told him we were going home. He asked me if we had any word from Mr. Ward today, and I told him we hadn't had any. Then he said we had better take the Hacker's Creek Road, because the gully was up from the mountain rains, and running logs, and if we got in there in the night, we would get you killed. And, interrupted Ump, turning round under the Bay Eagle. And then Miss Cynthia looked up sharp at him, like a catbird, and she laughed, and said how that advice wasn't needed, because little boys always went home by the safest road. The taunt sank in as oil sinks into cloth. I may have blushed and stammered, and I may have blubbered like a milksop, but it was not because I was afraid. I would show Woodford, and I would show this fickle Miss Gadabout that I did not need any advice about roads. If my life had been then in jeopardy, I would not have taken it burdened with a finger's weight of obligation to Rufus Woodford or Cynthia Carper. It might have gone out over the sill of the world for good and all. I arose and put the bridle rein over El Mahdi's head while I stood, my right hand reaching up on his high withers. Judd and Ump got into their saddles and turned down toward the ford of the stone coal on the Hacker's Creek Road, which Woodford had suggested. But under the coat my heart was stewing, and I would not have gone that way if the devil and his imps had been riding the other. I climbed into the saddle and shouted down to them. They turned back at the water of the ford. "'Where are you going?' I called. "'Home. Where else?' replied the dwarfed ump. "'It's a nice roundabout way you're taking.' I said. The Overfield Road is three miles shorter. But the gully's bloomin', answered Judd. Woodford said not to go that way. It's the first time, I shouted, that any of our people ever took directions from Hawk Roof. As for me, I'm going by the gully. And I turned El Mahdi into the wooded road on the left of the turnpike. For a moment the two hesitated, discussing something which I could not hear. Then they rode up out of the stone coal and came clattering after me. It is wonderful how swiftly the night comes in among the boles of the great oak trees. The dark seems to rise upward from the earth. The sounds of men and beasts carry over long distance, drifting in among the trees, and the loneliness of the vast, empty earth comes back to us. What is forgotten in the rush of the sunshine, the constant loom of the mystery, one understands then why the early men feared the plains when it was dark and huddled themselves together in the hills. Who could say what ugly, dwarfish things, what evil fairies, what dangerous dead men might climb up over the rim of the world? A man was not afraid of the gray wolf, or even the huge beast that trumpeted in the morass by the great water when the light was at his back. But when the world was darkened, old men had seen strange shapes running by the wolf's muzzle, or groping with the mastodon in the marshland, 
and against these a stone axe was a little weapon. Of all animals, man alone has this fear of the dark. Neither the horse nor the steer is afraid of shadows, and from these, as he travels through the night, a man may feed the springs of his courage. I have been scared when I was little, stricken with panic when the night caught me in the hills, and I have gone down among the cattle and stood by their great shoulders until I felt the fear run off me like water, and have straightway marched out as bravely as any trooper of an empress. And from those earliest days when I rode, with the stirrups crossed on my brother's saddle, after some kind old straying ox, I was always satisfied to go where the horse would go. He could see better than I, and he could hear better, and if he tramped peacefully, the land was certainly clear of any evil thing. We crossed the long wooded hill, clattering like a troop of the Queen's cavalry, and turned down toward the great level bow which the road makes before it crosses the Galney. There was a dim light rising beyond the flatlands, where the crooked elves toiled with their backs against the golden moon. But they were under the world yet, with only the yellow haze shining through the door. This was the acre of ghosts. Tale after tale I had heard, sitting on the knee of the grey old negro clabe, about the horrors of this haunted bend in the Golney. There, when I was a child, had lived old Bodkin in a stone house, now a ruin, by the river, a crooked, mean old devil with a great hump and eyes like a toad. He came to own the land through some suspicious will about which there clung the atmosphere of crime, as men said. When I saw him first, I was riding behind my brother, and he stopped us and tried to induce Ward to buy his land. He was mounted on a red roan horse, and looked like an old naughty spider. I can still remember how frightened I was, and how I hid my face against my brother's coat and hugged him until my arms ached. When Ward inquired why he wished to sell, he laughed a sort of cackle and replied that he was going to marry a wife and go to the moon. Now, tradition told that he had married many a wife, but that they died quickly in the poisoned chamber of this spider. Ward looked the bridegroom over from his twisted feet to his hump, and there must have been some merry shadow in his face, for Bodkin leaned over the horn of his saddle and stretched out his hand, a putty-colored hand, with long, bony fingers. "'Do you see that?' he croaked. "'If I ever get that hand on a woman, she's mine.' Then I began to cry, and Ward wished the old man a happy voyage to the Cloud Island, and we rode on. He did marry a wife, and one morning, but little afterwards, two of my brother's drivers found her hanging to the limb of a dead apple tree, with a bridle rein knotted to her neck, and her bare feet touching the tops of the timothy grass. When they came to look for Bodkin, he had disappeared with his red roan horse. Ward explained that he had ridden through the gap of the mountains into the south, but I thought, with the negroes, that someone ought to have seen him if he had gone that way. Besides, I had heard him to say that he was going to the moon. Later, old Bart and Levi Dilworth, returning from some frolic, had seen Bodkin riding his horse in a terrible gallop, with the dead woman across the horn of his saddle, on his way to the moon. It was true that both Bart and Levi were long in the bow-arm, and men who loved truth less than they loved laurels. Still the tale had splendid conditions precedent, 
and old Clabe arose to its support with many an eloquent wag of his head. I was running through this very ghost story when El Mahdi stopped in the road and pricked up his ears. At the same moment Judd and Ump pulled up beside me. Perhaps their minds were in the same channel. We listened for full a minute. Far down in the marshland I could hear the frogs chanting their mighty chorus to the stars, and the little screech-owl whining from some tree-top far up against the hill. I was about to ride on when Judd caught at the rein and put up his hand. Then I heard the sound that the horse was listening to, but at a great distance it was only a sound, a faint, wavering, indefinite echo, coming up from the faraway bend of the Golney. The rim of the moon was rising now out of the underworld, and I watched the road trailing away into a deep shadow by the river. As I watched, I saw something rise out of this gloom and sweep down the dim road. It passed for a moment through a belt of moonlight, and I saw that it was a horse ridden by a shadow. Then we clearly heard long, heavy galloping. Judd dropped my rein and wrenched the cardinal around on his haunches. He was not afraid of the living, but he was afraid of the dead. As the horse reared, Ump caught the bit under his jaw and, throwing the bay eagle against him, wedged the horse and Judd in between El Mahdi and himself. Ump was neither afraid of the living nor the dead. He called to me, and I seized the cardinal's bit on my side, gripping the iron shank with my fingers through the rain rings. Panic was on the giant Judd, and he lifted his horse into the air, dragging Ump and myself half out of our saddles. Men in their hopeless egotism have far underestimated the good sense of the horse. The cardinal was in no wise frightened. At once, it seemed to me, he recognized the irresponsibility of his rider. In some moment of the struggle the bit slipped forward, and the horse clamped his powerful jaws on it and set the great muscles in his neck to help us hold. The horses rocked and plunged, but we held them together. The bay eagle, quick-witted as any woman, crowded the cardinal close, throwing her weight against his shoulders. And El Mahdi, indifferent but stubborn as an ox, held his ground as though he were bolted to the road. I heard Ump cursing, now Judd for his cowardice, now the ghost for its infernal riding. Damn you, fool! Stay and see it! Stay and see it! And then, damn Botkin and his dead wife! If he rides this way, he stops here, or he goes under to hell. As for me, I was afraid. Only the swing and jamming of the struggle held me. The gallop of the advancing horse was now loud, clear, hammering like an anvil. It passed for a moment out of sight in a hollow of the road below. In the next instant it would be upon us. The giant Judd made one last mighty effort. The cardinal went straight into the air. I clung to the bit, dragged up out of the saddle. I felt my foot against the pommel, my knee against the steel shoulder of the great horse, my face under the cardinal's wide red throat. I heard the reins snap on both sides of the bit, pulled in two, and then the loud, harsh laugh of the man Ump. Hell, it's Jordan and Red Mike. End of chapter 3